Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. We're going to jump right in today. We've got a really interesting guest, David Kreutzer from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He's an expert on economics, on energy, on environmental issues. And what we're going to do today is discuss fossil fuel policy um, and look at just particular aspects of policy that you might not know about or that you might not be familiar with, but they're really important to understand in terms of seeing what the government is doing vis-a-vis fossil fuels and what it needs to do differently. So we'll talk about things like renewable energy standards or ideas like the social cost of carbon, so-called. Anyway, it should be a really interesting discussion, so stick around, and we'll be back with David Kreutzer on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is David Kreutzer of the Heritage Foundation, an expert on energy and environmental issues. David, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, in advance of the show, we we talked about three topics that I think are are major parts of the government, and particularly the Obama administration's uh, attack on cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. Um, So there's the uh, Climate Action Plan, which was recently announced, uh, something called the Social Cost of Carbon, or carbon dioxide, and then Renewable Electricity Standards. So let, let's start with the uh, Climate Action Plan. For those for whom it's a bit foggy, what exactly is the Climate Action Plan? Well, it was a surprisingly foggy plan, so they, they shouldn't feel too bad if it's, if it's foggy. Um, the, the, the president came out uh, last month um, with a, a statement and uh, a, a program where he's really I think trying to assuage the environmental left part of his base, um, saying he hasn't forgotten about uh, climate change and um, we're, we're going to do some things. He mentions the increased uh, miles per gallon standard for the cafe standard for cars. But really what he's unleashing, and it has already been in play, is a regulatory jihad against uh, coal-fired electricity, which is the major source of our uh, electric power today. And so they, you know, we, we have we have the regulatory structure um, that has, at least for the moment, and it looks like uh, they're trying to make it permanent, made it impossible to build a new coal-fired power plant, and they are moving to make that retroactive so that existing coal-fired power plants uh, will have to be shut down over the next 15 years or 20 years. Um, so can you elaborate on the mechanism by which this happened? So if, if we even think about a, a policy we might think is completely legitimate, such as shutting down coal plants or making it illegal to build new yeah. ones, this is not something passed by Congress, publicly de- deliberated, et cetera, right? This is something the executive... No, no certainly not. Not supposed to do this. Some of it, a lot of it comes from the Clean Air Act. And, of course, there was the Supreme Court ruling a few years back that determined that carbon dioxide, which, is, of course, is a colorless, odorless, non-toxic gas, was a threat to human health and welfare because of its supposed impact. Uh, well, it has an impact on warming, but the, the magnitude is the, the one that's in question. Um, so using 
that and that other other aspects of the Clean Air Act, you know, there are criterion uh, pollutants, you know, like uh, mercury, lead, uh, nitrous oxides, and so on, which have already been controlled, uh, you know, to a considerable extent. And they are now the EPA is com- coming in a variety of fronts. One is they, you know, they had something called the Mercury Rule last year, and they were justifying. Uh, additional uh, restrictions and costly retrofits for coal-fired power plants uh, under the justification that it would reduce mercury emissions. And then when you actually look at the EPA's own calculated benefits of mercury emissions, they were negligible, um, and they justified it actually through uh, sort of secondary benefits of reducing particulate matter, which was already regulated, uh, and the EPA knew that, and they were already regulating it to the, the maximum extent. The net effect was it made it very expensive uh, to, to, to keep your coal plants going. So yeah, yeah, if you build the new ones, it was almost impossible. So people aren't, uh, aren't proposing new ones. Then you um, come after the, the CO2. So they're saying, well, you need to have new efficiency in order to uh, build a new power plant. It has to produce a certain amount of electricity for each ton of CO2 that it produces. And that level that they chose was impossible for coal plants to meet without uh, an untested technology called carbon capture and sequestration, uh, something that doesn't look especially promising. Now, if you look at, I mean, having visited, you know, a lot of different communities that that Mm -hmm. use coal, just on a common sense level, people with coal-fired electricity uh, tend to be quite happy uh, with (laughs) it and and have been for for quite a while, uh, which points to the fact that if you take an integrated big picture uh, stance on this kind of thing, the the value of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy um, just far outweighs these minute little things where you can detect some very small amount of particulate matter. You can come up with some bogus study that in 20 million times the quantity, it would be harmful. Um, right. What do you think should actually be the policy toward these kinds of things? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I think there is good reason for regulating uh, the toxic, the actual toxic emissions, uh, which they've done and they've, those have come down quite dramatically, even though we have a lot more electricity produced today uh, we have maybe half as much of those pollutants. So if you look at per kilowatt hour, the, 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 it's come way down. And on things like lead, you know, we've certainly gotten rid of that. That's no longer in, for instance, gasoline, where's where we had most of it. So you know, that's come down over 90%. So the, you know, the things that can actually make you sick, you know, we should control. Um, but it doesn't mean you, can, you get rid of 100% of these things because it's impossible. In fact, you get mercury when you burn wood. You know, they have mercury emissions, and per kilowatt hour, uh, you know, it's not that different than the mercury emissions you get from burning coal. So there's nothing magical about shifting from coal to biofuels uh, in terms of those, those um, criterion pollutants, you know, the, the mercury, the, the ash, the, you know, all the other things. <clears throat> but in any event, so, yeah, go ahead. Just, just in terms of, just to, to push back a little bit on the, the toxicity issue, I mean, in almost every case, though, there's there's an issue of, of dosage. So if you talk about mercury and it becomes, you know, through exactly. various processes, meth mercury in the system, okay, there's more of that in the atmosphere from volcanoes than there is from, from a coal plant. And so I don't know if there's this hard distinction between a toxic gas and a non-toxic, I mean, even CO2, if you have a hot, you had some, you know, what if you had 8,000 parts per million in the atmosphere, then that might affect... Uh, you know, human health, or if you had, you know, too low a dosage, it would certainly uh, affect, well, it'd kill everyone, kill yeah. all planet. Right, 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 right. 
Yeah, yeah, no, no. The, and that is, the, you know, in the, their analysis frequently misses the dose is critical, um, especially in that, that mercury analysis. They, they, they cherry-picked the studies. They ignored those studies that showed people, you know, eating more fish that had the mercury in them, you know, where it didn't have any impact on their health. They found one extreme case in the Faroe Islands where people ate huge amounts of, of, of fatty fish caught nearby, and there was a very, very slight change in a measure of uh, childhood development, and they so they extrapolated that out, and they assumed that uh, you know everybody that was exposed at all to mercury had a proportional impact. You know, it's, it's like saying if uh, four people uh, jump off a 50-foot ledge and one of them dies, then if 400 people uh, you know jump off of a uh, one-foot ledge, you're still going to have one person die. You know, something along those lines. It's, it's, it's really kind of silly. But, the, but I, I think that was the case. You know, I, I remember driving through Gary, Indiana as a child in the summer, of, you know, in the early 60s when there were no controls whatsoever. Um, it was, you know, pretty nasty. So I think there was an argument for some control, but we've gone way beyond that. And, there's, and it's sort of like the, the, they're using uh, the Clean Air Act as an attack not for what it was intended for, for the, for the actual toxins, you know, that may have been toxic at some level, but for CO2. And, uh, and they know that. So they're, they're, there's a, I think it's a scam. They know that they're going after CO2, but they're pretending they're doing something else. So that, that, that's just one area. You know, and in some cases, they're explicitly going after the CO2 as well. All right. So if we, if we jump back out to the, to the climate action plan, what, do you, yeah. what, what are the, the main impacts of this if it, if it went through? And, and just for argument's sake, both on actual quality of life, but also on this issue of how much of this non-pollutant CO2 would actually be reduced. Okay. Well, we, what we did is we looked at the trend and we see that there is on every front that you can look at the EPA where they're, where they're talking about energy, they are going full tilt to get rid of coal. So what we did an analysis, we said, well, let's suppose they're successful. You know, we, we don't know exactly which mechanism they're going to use, exactly which justification they're going to base it on. But what if we got rid of all coal in the next 20 years, all coal-fired power? Okay, not coal exports, and we, we, coal is almost entirely used to generate electricity. Uh, there, there are very few uh, industrial uses, but, but mostly electricity. Well, we, we found that um, in the mid-2020s, uh, the gap between the employment that we project without this war on coal and the one we would get with this climate action plan, which is a kill coal plan, the difference would be 500,000 jobs. So the accumulated impact right in there would be you know, half a million lost jobs. And a big chunk of them in manufacturing, 280,000 lost manufacturing jobs. Uh, you know, clearly coal mining employment gets killed, uh, but, it, but it also spreads to, to general manufacturing. And we see uh, increase in the price of natural gas of 42% compared to what we would have without this war on coal. So there's a lot of collateral damage in a war on coal. Um, and that's, you know, it's going to reduce family four income drops by a thousand bucks per year. You know, and on top of that, their electricity prices go up 20%. So they're getting pinched from the income side. They're getting pinched from the cost of utility side. They're getting pinched from losing their jobs. So it's, um, you know, it can be pretty damaging. People think that, well, if we get rid of coal, that's going to be incentive. There's going to be all these new, there's going to be windmills and solar panels. 
Well, we use the same computer code that, that the Department of Energy uses for their analysis. It's called the uh, National Energy Modeling System. We adapted it at, Her at Heritage. We call it the Heritage Energy Model, but it uses the, the same computer code. Um, and we use their baseline assumptions. And if you, if you get rid of all this electricity, only 4% of the electricity you lose from coal is made up by uh, renewables. So the, the renewables hardly fill any of the gap. Uh, about 75% is made up by natural gas, which means that, that natural gas can't also be used in manufacturing, which is giving us a manufacturing renaissance right now. And then 20%, roughly, you simply do without. You know, people can't afford higher electricity, so you don't use as much. Um, so that, that's where you get the impact. You, you know, this, this pie-in-the-sky notion, we, you know, if we, if we kill coal, we're going to have windmills and solar panels replacing it all, ignores a couple of things. One is that it's simply too costly, and two... The, they, they're intermittent. You can't count them. They're not dispatchable sources of electricity. You can't replace a coal plant with any number of windmills or solar panels because sometimes the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, and then what do you do? Yeah, and I definitely want to go, uh, go into that a lot more when we talk about renewable uh, electricity standard. But going sure. back to, you mentioned uh, modeling methodology and the model that you, that you use. Can you talk about how you figure something out or how you derive something like this many jobs because we there are a million different claims of this sort and they tend to they can come across as abstract and and the causality is not always very clear so could you elaborate on that yeah what the 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 national energy modeling system that we've adapted here um has a, a bunch of computer code in it that is based on estimates of what happens to energy prices and uh, when you um, what happens to energy supply when you change the price if you or if you get rid of you know a certain amount of some source of electricity that's going to how much will it jack up the price how much will that higher price induce supplies from other sources so that's you know the very complicated you, you don't have to like it I'm you know I'm, I wouldn't uh, you know bet my life that we're within you know two significant digits of what actually happened but this is the Sort of the, the, the state-of-the-art model is from the Department of Energy. So you take those, that, those energy interactions, you know, um, you know if, if we get rid of you know, a certain percentage of coal, how much new natural gas is produced, how much of the natural gas that you had anyway is shifted from one use to another use, and you, and you get a bunch of price responses, and you plug that into our macroeconomic model. So if we say if the price of electricity goes up 20%, if the price of natural gas goes up 40%, you know, how does that affect manufacturing activity? How does that affect commercial activity? You know, what does that do to jobs? Because we've seen in the past, you know, we, can, we can look and say, well, uh, you know, we can do estimates of how sensitive employment is to various energy prices, how sensitive manufacturing is to various energy prices. And so you know, based on those studies, uh, we can make a projection of what will happen in the future, assuming the similar sorts of responses. So to, to then describe it, that makes a lot of sense. To can you describe it, though, a bit in just common sense cause and effect terms? Like what is, what is so important about something like coal in terms of generating a certain caliber and cost of energy that can yeah. lead to something as dramatic as 500,000 people having a job or not? Yeah. Okay. So we, uh, roughly 40% of our electricity right now comes from coal. We have a, a huge built uh, coal generating capacity that you know, has a life expectancy of you know, 50, 60 years per, 
for, for a new plant, you know, obviously 30 years for one that's halfway through. So you, you pull that out and you're going to be losing uh, very cost-effective electricity because once it's already built, the, the, the cost to the economy overall is just the cost of the fuel and the maintenance. Um, and you replace that with power plants that you have to build from scratch and in many cases fuel with higher-priced uh, you know, sources of power. Um, when that drives up the price of electricity, you have that working two ways. One, obviously the utility bills people have to pay go up. And so that reduces the amount of money that they have to spend on everything else. Two, it drives up the cost of production. Okay. So on the supply side, your costs go up. On the demand side, people are spending have less to spend. And so employment gets pinched from both sides. People are buying less. Um, the manufacturers can't even afford to sell the same amount at the same price. So they're charging a higher price, which reduces their demand for labor. They, don't, they, they can't sell as much as they used to sell, so they don't need as many people to produce it. So the, 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 energy, the energy is very critical to a modern economy. I think that's a good segue into uh, renewable electricity mm -hmm. uh, standards, both uh, you know, regional uh, and national. Uh, let's start out, what, what is a renewable electricity standard? Yeah, the, the renewable electricity standards, and, and right, and right now it's not a federal one, but there are state and regional uh, PACs. And they would say, um, the utilities, uh, you have whatever amount of electricity you provide, a minimum fraction of that has to come from um, qualified renewable sources that, that never include uh, you know, major hydroelectric power plants and never include nuclear. So it comes down to primarily wind with some solar and some biofuels. I mean, excuse me, uh, you know, biomass, which is like burning wood chips in a coal-fired power plant, which is a typical way of generating electricity from, from biomass. So well, just stopping there, what is the, I mean, <laughs> I know philosophically what's behind this, but what is the rationale for calling, quote, renewable only these really inferior sources of energy and not something like large-scale hydro? Well, it, 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 it comes from two sources. One, the, the, the main driver is the, this infatuation with reducing carbon footprints. So CO2 is inherently bad. And then it gets mixed in with some of the older environmental shibboleths, which are you know, nuclear is bad and hydro is bad. Um, so, so you know, if, if you really, really were only worried about CO2, you'd, you'd, you'd love nuclear. Um, you know, you, you would want to dam up more rivers, but then you worry about the rivers. But the, the nuclear one, people, the environmental groups have made such a living over the past several decades being anti-nuclear that they, they can't switch uh, or else they, you know, they confuse their donors. <laughs> that's, at least that's my view of it. So you have the renewable electricity standards is fundamentally to reduce um, CO2 emissions. And the, well, but, but that the, seems like completely false. That it's fundamental. I mean, it might be that that's the mandate, but it's yeah, 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 that's, yeah. That's like saying my goal is to like grow tall, and I'm not going to eat any food. I mean, it's or, or yeah, or I want to lose weight, so you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to have the maraschino cherry on my banana split. You know, you know, it, you know, you know, you can see, yeah, there's a calorie there, but that's not your problem. You know, some maraschino cherries are not causing obesity, and uh, so so it's you know, you ha even if you were worried about. CO2's impact on climate, which I'm not especially worried about. You know, the, the trends just aren't heading towards catastrophe. You know, the, the models aren't predicting what we're seeing, all these sorts of problems. But even if we were heading to it, these solutions 
don't get us any salvation. So, but but it's it's it's. I think it's just taken out of its, its own life. It's it's cutting CO2 is a virtue of its own, independent of what it might do to temperature, independent of whatever it costs. It's just become thought of as a good thing. But so he, here's what's happening: the renewable renewable energy standard. So these, you know, they, what you have is an increasing uh, required fraction for uh, of electricity that has to come from wind, solar, and biomass. Um, Initially, it's a couple. It's a small percentage. So let's say you have one percent. You know, the first couple of years. Well, one percent of even very expensive electricity, something that costs three or four times as much, is not going to have a dramatic impact on the average electricity bill. It might go up. You know, three percent. You know, if you have three times as much for one percent of your electricity. Um, you know, that alone, by the way, would have you know macroeconomic impacts that we would be able to measure. But people aren't going to really riot because of their electric bill because you know varies more than that with the weather but when you start getting to 5 10 15 percent and a lot of these targets are 20 or 25 percent ultimately um, then you do have significant impacts on not only households costs but manufacturers costs and these people are looking you know they're competing with firms that are producing products where the electricity prices aren't being artificially jacked up um, so you're going to see migration of, of manufacturers from you know, high-cost places to low-cost places, and then the, the, the associated job losses in, in those areas. Um, and you also have a problem that we really are only starting to see in some places, and that's how do you integrate these intermittent sources of electricity where the wind picks up and the electricity zooms up and independent of whatever the demand may be at that time. And when the wind drops off, the, the supply drops off independent of what might be happening to demand at that time. And we, there's no way to store this electricity. A lot of people don't understand that the, the, the kilowatt hours going in, the kilowatts going into a system have to equal the kilowatts coming out of the system at every instant. And if you know, if you, when you turn on your toaster, you reduce the voltage system wide by some teeny amount. Everybody turns their toaster on at once. You know, then it might get outside the allowable bands, and they have to bring new supply on very quickly. So they have estimates of what demand will be. And with coal, with natural gas, with nuclear, you can be fairly confident of how much you're going to be getting at any particular time. Not true with wind and solar, and they're having trouble getting those things integrated into the system without having voltage spikes or uh, without having very expensive backup. And I mean, this, this issue of, of what it means to, to scale an unreliable source, I don't think is understood by, by very many people because I, I, I wrote an article last week about mm -hmm. uh, the Tesla and I mentioned the intermittency problem among other things. And you have all these people saying, well, I, uh, my house has solar panels, so my Tesla is powered by solar. And they don't seem to understand that they're doing this in effect. They're being a parasite, and the only the network can only ha handle so many parasites in terms of of reliability. Right. I think very few people have solar panels that would uh, power a Tesla charger on you know the the high the high fast rate charger, and it, and it really it, it doesn't matter because you're just adding a additional uncertainty to the system do you you know when do you plug your tesla in to be charged you know if you do it at two in the morning every single morning you know, that's probably the most benign way to do it but i'm i'm guessing most people are going to plug it in as soon as they get home they don't know when they're going to drive next and when the electricity might go out so you want to charge it as soon as you get home um and that that could be adding demand at a peak demand time 
Now, your, your solar panels are generating electricity independent of whatever your demand may be. And they, you know, they're going to generate mostly in the middle of the afternoon, um, not so much at dinner time. Uh, when when you have the peak uh, home use, so yeah, the, you know the I mean the Tesla's a different you know the arguments for and against and so on is a, is a different one, but you're you know it doesn't the the load that your car is putting on the system is not absolved by the fact that you have solar panels because you know if even if they were producing at maximum and the system's depending on them to produce a maximum when you plug your Tesla in it's it's a pretty big draw. Um, going back to the the. Their bizarre, on its face, bizarre selection of what counts as quote renewable. <laughs> if you really wanted to reduce CO two, I want to just step back and ask, why in the world would renewable be a standard? I mean, from one perspective, there's no such thing as renewable. There's nothing right. infinite. There's the sun is just a big fusion reaction, and then you've got a <laughs> bunch of materials that are definitely not renewable on Earth, and whose scalability we certainly know very little about. But I mean, why would that? Why wouldn't, the, if you just believe in economics, why wouldn't the standard be let's always use the most economic form of energy and see how that plays out? Yeah, well, the, the, that's way too rational um, because that the the policy is not made for rational reasons in D.C. It's a it's a product of a mission on some people's part interacting with untold number of special interests who are trying to bend whatever the uh, the, the, the current mania of the of the month is um, with their their own special interests. That is, you know, every, everybody is going to tell you why if you if you subsidize their industry, it's actually going to be good for energy independence or for CO2 emissions or for whatever. You know, this has just been going on forever. So, uh, you, you know, you you have people that. That like wild rivers, I can like wild rivers for that matter. Um, who are saying, wait a minute, we've been we've been fighting uh, dams for you know 50 years. Um, we're not willing to give that up. Uh, so let's rule out uh, you know ponded hydroelectric as a source of renewable because we don't like that. We don't like nuclear. Uh, because we saw, you know, you know, the China syndrome, you know, right before the Three Mile Island, where nobody was hurt, by the way, and so we've been anti-nuclear. Uh, it's easy to get people to have all their bumper stickers from the last 40 years. They can they can put them back on. They they know they don't like nuclear. Uh, you know, the, the reasons for not liking it are different now, but that doesn't matter. So it, it's it's not a rational process. You know, the interaction of the special interests with a um, you know, with, with a new concern, generates pretty bizarre results. To what extent, though, is this just uh, a form of believing in Thomas Malthus versus uh, Julian Simon? Because it seems like they believe in this idea, well, you know, using, quote, finite sources of energy is, quote, unsustainable. Right. And then their, their sort of solution to Malthus is, let's just use the sun for everything, because the sun is infinite and good. Right. I, I think there's a, a huge overlap between the, um, the, the neo-Malthusians and the concern over climate. If you, know, you look at the, the resulting solutions are, are pretty much identical. You know, we, we need to restrict resource use. In this case, it's, it's uh, mostly uh, you know, carbon-based energy sources. Um, but you still have them coming out saying, well, we, what we really need ultimately is, you know, restrictions on population growth. Uh, you know, in spite of Julian Simon's prescience, in spite of the fact that the uh, income per capita worldwide has gone up, you know, the, the amount of time people have to work to feed themselves has gone down. You know, all of the things, all of the trends that 
that we should have expected if we were reaching overpopulation, but they're all going the opposite way. Doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it's such a it's such a great fundamental logic from Malthus that people want to believe it, um, and they apply it to energy. You know, you have the you know peak oil. You know, that was another justification for going to you know electric cars. You know, peak peak oil seems laughable now with the you know Eagleford in Texas and the Bakken in uh, in, in North Dakota, um, production in the U.S., you know, instead of declining, is, is, has risen very rapidly, a uh, million barrels a day um, over the past couple of years. So, you know, they, it doesn't slow down, though. You know, Malthus's, Malthus's logic is, you know, if you believe his presumption that, you know, food can only grow linearly, which we've proven is not true, but once you give him that, you know, it's, it's an easy for seventh graders to understand Malthus's logic, and so they don't want to go any further. Keep believing it. <laughs> yeah, seventh graders is a good good group to mention because it, it seems like be, both before and after that, they don't get educated in in the basics of how the amazing unprecedented uh, unprecedented civilization they live in works. And even even with something like peak oil, I mean, I, I hear this idea. Well, it's been refuted by. Um, you know, by shale energy, and in a sense, that's that's true. But I mean, it's an incoherent idea in the first place because all the all the positive side says is let the best energy win, and so one outcome would be the best substitute for you know portable fuel turned out to be something else. Now it turns out once again right. the best substitute for oil turns out to be more oil. But either way, the peak oil thing that we're going to fall off a cliff just ignores economics and, and particularly Julian Simon on human ingenuity. Right, right. No, I, I agree with you. But, but, and I think the, the ingenuity is, I mean, this case, right, the, the, the ingenuity worked out that we found clever ways to get to, at oil that we thought was inaccessible and wasn't included in our, our estimates. Sure, and at some point that's going to get expensive. Will we find it additional technology to make the very expensive oil cheaper or are we just going to find that we can you know run cars some other way you know maybe the battery car will work and so on um or maybe we will just reorganize uh you know the way we commute we're going to telecommute instead of driving cars you know all sorts of adaptation mechanisms uh and there's incentive there for in markets to find the most efficient the most effective the most convenient and the cheapest um None of which are uh, criterion used by planners in D.C. In, in choosing which energy sources and transportation mechanisms we're going to use. Speaking of uh, criteria used by planners, uh, perhaps uh, Little Caesars in D.C., let's talk <laughs> about the social cost of carbon. Now, it's a pet peeve of mine that carbon and carbon dioxide are equated as if they're the same thing, and particularly because... Car, I mean, as, as valuable as carbon dioxide is, carbon is the dominant element of life, whereas carbon right. dioxide is simply the basic input of plant life, which then is responsible for mammal life. Uh, but so social cost of carbon dioxide, what, what is this idea and how is it being used? The idea is that when another ton of, of carbon dioxide is emitted um, by some anthropogenic process, you know, primarily um, generating energy, <clears throat> that that adds to the warming capacity of the atmosphere and that leads to additional warming and that that impact can go on according to them for centuries and so the question is how much damage is done from the warming 
uh, and any potential sea level rise that ensues from the warming and whatever other bad things you can imagine from warming happening. Ignore virtually all of the good things that might happen from warming, by the way, in this process. Um, and then you say, okay, that will be the social cost of carbon. That is, and it isn't carbon dioxide that they're talking about. And they, they come up with a number. Well, we've, we've been looking at that recently because there was it was it, they they kind of slipped it in when people weren't looking. You know, one regulation where it came in was about three years ago, and it was a regulation on setting the efficiency standards for compressors in beverage vending machines. Your Coca-Cola vending machine. The federal government. There must have been hundreds of people working on this rule, determining exactly what was the minimum amount of efficiency required in a Coca-Cola machine, which to me is ridiculous in the first place. But even more ridiculous to put in this measure that's going to be used to determine the cost of energy in general in such an obscure rule. Well, it seemed like it was just coming and going, nothing happened. It came up again uh, this, this year in a rule to regulate the microwave oven efficiency in, in an odd portion of the microwave oven efficiency, and that is how much energy it uses in standby mode. Um, and so they've, they've justified new regulations on the standby mode consumption of electricity in microwave ovens in part on something called the social cost of carbon, and that is how much damage is done due to the warming caused by another ton of carbon dioxide. So, and how, uh, how much is that? <laughs> well, you know, in five years ago, they said they thought it was like three to nine dollars per ton, rising at some you know rate of growth over the next century. Um, they've now pushed it up to um, probably thirty-five dollars a ton to maybe a couple hundred dollars a ton. You know, there, there are all these uncertainties, and when when you actually look at the methodology, they they use this very sophisticated. Um, statistical technique, but when you get to the core, what it is that they're doing all of this fancy computer, you know, analysis, um, and you look at how much damage to the economy is caused by another uh, degree of warming, and they have no data. They make it up. And there's a Harvard economist named Robert Pendyke, who's very much in favor of a carbon tax, but who says, look, this justification simply doesn't make sense. The social cost of carbon uh, calculations are, are based on what the fundamental core of this computer program is a function that is entirely arbitrary. There's no theory to back it up, and there's no data to back it up. It's just people kind of guessing as to what it might be um, with total blue sky guessing. Um, and so it's, it's entirely illegitimate the, the numbers that they're using, but they're going to use those numbers to determine what you know sorts of regulations they're going to have on your dishwashers, your washing machines, your automobile, uh, and uh, power generating plants. So, so I'm curious, although I'm not really curious. Uh -huh. but I know the answer. What what is, what price do they put on the social cost of not emitting CO2? So if we got rid of all CO2 generating power, you know, let's say a couple billion people can. Um, you know, would die in fairly short order. So how do they how do they make that calculation? They don't. What they say is that people will, you know, if if you if the electricity keeps you alive, you're willing to pay for it. Um, and this is they're making an economics called an externality argument. That is when 
when I buy electricity, the private benefits of the electricity go to me. The warmth of the house goes to me. The ability to watch TV, that goes to me. If, you know, the, the x-ray machine uses electricity, I'm paying for the x-ray that covers the cost of that, but not for the warming caused by the CO2 emitted by the, you know, the 85% of the electricity that's generated from fossil fuels. So, that you're right. Now, you, what you should look at is are there are there impacts from higher energy costs that spread? Indeed, there are. There are health impacts. You know, when electricity becomes more expensive, people with asthma use air conditioning a little bit less. They're more likely to have a, a chronic attack. It sends them to the hospital. All these sorts of things that they're trying to counter um, by you know re- reducing some of the particulate emissions, which we've we already control to a huge extent. Um, and so the, the ability to reduce even more is, is fairly limited. Yes, there are huge benefits from affordable energy. Um, but the, the argument in Washington is that those all accrue to the people who pay for them, whereas not all of the costs do. But I, I, I think that's um, somewhat bogus uh, in that there are all kinds of things that we do that have some sort of impact on others. If I, you know, if I stay up late and don't get my sleep or don't take my vitamin pills, you know, I'm more likely to get sick and therefore I'm more likely to make the people at my office sick and, you know, those sorts of things. We don't, you know, we don't want the government to come by and check bedtime for you or, you know, are you wearing your cap when you go out or that sort of stuff. So it's a, what we need is to say, okay, is the threat commensurate with the power that government is taking to control this threat? And I think the answer to that is a clear no. Yeah, I mean, and I have a chapter in my my book, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet. I think the chapter is called The Pseudoscience of Externalities. And part of the issue is there's this assumption, there's a complete misunderstanding of what a price is, that a price is this sort of universal, cosmic, divine measure of something's exact value to your life. And thus, if there's anything that's not, quote, factored in the price, then there's some sort of, of problem. That's not how a price works at all. And there's this, I think it's helpful, the idea of consumer surplus is useful in this kind of analysis where mm-hmm. you look at, you look at, I mean, my favorite example is, you know, if my best friend is going to die and I pay one dollar for the gasoline that takes him to the hospital, was that value? Did I just get a one dollar value? Did he get a one dollar value? No, I got a million dollar value. So the price that we pay for oil does not at all reflect its its benefit and the price that everyone pays, that every single other person who's quote affected by this externality, he too is getting disproportionate positive benefits. So the idea that we just look at these negative impacts, which everyone is quote inflicting on everyone else and not look at the massive positive is complete pseudoscience and and I think emanates from the profession of economics being very parasitical in terms of what it looks for. Like it's always looking for negatives from capitalism, but it's, it's not... It's kind of in front of us that our lives are massively better because of fossil fuels, and yet these economic calculations are are bl- as blind to that as uh, Bill McKibben or Al Gore. Right, right. No, no, I agree. And you know, in the game, I mean, I taught economics for 26 years, and I understand fully. You know, you say, well, what's the? We're looking at the marginal cost. You know, how? You know, and if that if that cost of gasoline was one dollar or twenty dollars, you're going to drive your buddy to the hospital. So they're saying, well, what about the ones where you're just going on an afternoon cruise or something? You know, we want to cut those ones back, but it doesn't matter. You know, they, they what what it is is we have a game. 
uh, in economics where you it's gone on for a century you know dissertation after dissertation after dissertation you know re, you know study after study that the game works like this we identify some market imperfection if you believe that the you know the neoclassical you know marginal cost equals marginal benefit and all kinds of margins that you can imagine and where exactly where supplies and demands cross you know that explains everything as opposed to a more austrian view of you know we're trying to seek out you know, what are the costs? We're trying to find new products and all those sorts of things. So you have this game and you say, okay, I can imagine some market imperfection where we don't get to exactly where this marginal, this equals marginal, that. And if you impose this tax or this subsidy, in my little diagram, you get the lines to cross where they should. One of my professors was James Buchanan. And he had a huge, strong reaction to this when he was starting the public choice school with Gordon Tullock. And they said, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe. What do you think government's going to do with this power that you're giving them to tax and subsidize? Do you think it's going to come out exactly like you propose? You know, there's just going to be some little nickel tax here or a nickel subsidy there? Or are you going to have huge special interests come in and seeing, well, wait a minute, if we're talking about energy, for instance, um, the sorts of taxes and regulations they're talking about are going to generate $300 billion a year in revenue. And, you know, so you're going to, you, you think that people aren't going to be interested in that, that they're not going to use that to push the tax higher than it should be to transfer the revenue to people who have, you know, no particular claim on it. And sure enough, you do. And so that's why the, this, it drives me crazy when I see all these mentions of externals here and there that are, um, that are so small compared to the power you're giving the government to fix it. You know, so the notion is that we have a $300 billion tax and a $295 billion transfer, and it's going to solve, you know, a $6 billion per year problem, and somehow it's all going to work out. It never does. You know, if you, 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 if you look at the cap-and-trade bill, the wax market cap-and-trade bill, the first version was 650 pages because they copied all of the previous cap-and-trade bill. By the time all the horse trading was done, three months later, it was 1,428 pages. They were changing the text of the bill as it was being debated on the floor of Congress because side deals were being made with various special interests. And it didn't even get to cap and trade until page 700. <laughs> so that, you know, you, I, I think you're, you, fundamentally your approach is right. You know, that, you know the, this notion of externalities all over the place, I, I, I probably come at it a different direction, but to the same conclusion that... Um, except in the most extreme cases where simple, cheap legislation can fix the big pollution problem, um, you, you're going to end up with a with a with the fix costing more than the than the problem was worth in the first place. Yeah, just as, as just a quick elaboration on that. Also, there's this assumption now. I think you have all these little economists, would-be economist kings out there. And there's no there's no acknowledgement that there's a different framework for this, which is a rights <laughs> framework, which is saying that above a certain threshold, you can call a certain amount of uh, of emission that's pollution and it should be restricted. And there's there's an element of what's the economic and technological context. Like it's I think what how much you know coal you can burn what way is different in 1850 than it is today because of right. of technology, but. Like to, to think of everything in terms of let's put a price on it. I mean, if something kills someone, what does it mean to put a price on it? That's not the most rational way uh, to deal with it. So 
the rights framework of John Locke and successors is a really, really good framework for thinking about this. And, and they recognized th their framework was not, we're going to leave you free because everything will work out in this perfect utilitarian way. It was, we're going to leave you free, live your life to the best of your ability. Your interests are generally in harmony with others and we want to prevent and don't interfere with others' lives and action. It's such a, a beautiful system that seems lost in this kind of collectivist economic pseudoscience. Yeah, and and I think when when you get to the to the climate stuff, it's it's necessary for the people pushing this climate agenda to make everyone believe that without invoking a carbon tax, without a cap and trade, without EPA regulating coal out of existence, it's going to be the end of civilization. The story's over. I mean, you have the Al Gore, you know, the, showing pictures of, you know, flooding in, in, you know, in New York City being underwater by 2100. I mean, you know, if, if that were, we were definitely headed there. And if you're, you know, carbon tax was going to fix that, then we could talk. But we're not headed there. You know, the, it's just the, the trend. There's no trend on, on hurricanes. There's no trend on tornadoes. There's no trend. It has gotten warmer. We don't see more tornadoes. We don't see more hurricanes. We don't see more droughts. We don't see more floods. So there's, they, but they need that. They need every single tornado to be caused by global warming. They need every single hurricane, you know, Sandy, you know, every, it's received wisdom in the, in the media that Sandy was caused by CO2 emissions. You no, know, it's just stupid. We've had hurricanes like that for millennia. Um, so they, they need an end of civilization story to, to come up with a big enough externality to justify this huge intrusion, this huge increase in energy costs, this huge management of how long your dishwasher has to run, you know, so that you can save a gallon of hot water. Over and over, everywhere, it just comes at you from right, left, front, behind. Um, and it's, and they, they can't say, well, you know, the evidence seems to say that we're really not heading to a problem. We think there might be something. We're not sure. You know, you know if, if that's the true science and it comes out, people can say, well, you know, I don't want to pay... 20% more for electricity. You know, I don't want a smaller, less safe, more expensive car. You know, so they, they, need, they need this fraud on the science side to justify this huge power grab on the government side. Last question. I, I didn't know that you studied under uh, Jim Buchanan, but uh, for those, yep. uh, we've discussed public choice on this uh, show before a couple of times. It's a really interesting framework, I think. Particularly, we have discussed it a bit with just the uh, you know, climate, quote unquote, climate science establishment and the kinds of incentives that, <laughs> that exist, you know, with the government and research and uh, public right. statements and, and, and politicians and whatnot. Uh, but just on a more personal note, I mean, you know, you don't always get the chance in life to be around someone really brilliant. You know, he was Nobel yeah. Prize winner in 1986, I believe. What, what was he like as a, as a mind? Um, he was, I mean, very thoughtful. Um, very, very smart. I can remember we, as grad students, there was a, there was an evening seminar series on Wednesday evenings and, um, you know, people from all around the country, sometimes people recruiting for a job, but usually pretty big name people came and he would sit kind of in the back and half the times his eyes were closed. And I always thought, well, I mean, a lot of his thought he was asleep and he would ask a question, you know, come up, you know, be over. He would ask a question. And I would say probably 20% of the time when he asked it, most of the grad students thought, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. And, of course, 
on occasion, it was a dumb question. So the, one of the things I used to tell my students is, don't be afraid to ask dumb questions. Here's the smartest guy that, you know, that, that I ever worked with. He was, he was entirely unafraid of asking a question. But more importantly, the vast majority of times, it was only seemed dumb at first, and then when he explains it, boom, you realize he got something that was, everybody else in the room just completely missed. So uh, very, very smart guy. Um, an iconoclastic, you know, he was not at all infatuated with the total mathematicization of economics. Um, you know, he could do it, I'm sure, when he was a grad school in Chicago, he was as good at math as everybody else there. Um, but he saw that as sort of distracting from really the more powerful um, parts of economics. Uh, when, when, when you look at institutions, when you look at just common logic. So he, he was very verbal. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I, it was it was a uh, it was an honor to um, to have him on my committee and to just have him in class and see him work at seminars. <laughs> wow. All right, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, sure, heritage.org. So if you go to heritage.org and you can type in the search bar, um, you know, either climate if you want or, you know, Kreutzer if you want to see stuff specifically that I've done. Um, but we have a lot of people here working on that. And uh, so you can go one of the LFAs is climate and energy. So that, that would be great. Heritage.org. All right, David. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks again to David Kreutzer for coming on the show. Uh, we pretty much covered everything I wanted to during the show, so I don't have too much of any kind of follow-up monologue. Um, so I'll, I'll take the occasion just to encourage people to check out Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, which is at industrialprogress.com slash book, and that also includes a link to buy the physical version on Amazon if you want to. But I was uh, I was reading the first chapter the other day, and it's not that great an idea to be too enamored with one's own work. But I think it really is a, a, you know, just about the best few page synopsis of how to think about fossil fuels and what's wrong with the common objections. Uh, but more importantly, even what's, what's right about the freedom to use fossil fuels. So just if you can get your friends, family, etc., to read even the first couple pages of that book, it, it can do quite a bit. Uh, speaking of, of promoting our ideas, We've been scaling up operations quite a bit in terms of helping people get involved. And our, our weekly newsletter, which is now called Movement, is a part of that. Every week we're featuring uh, stories about how people are winning hearts and minds in their own way. We're sharing what we're doing. So really make sure to, to check that out and, and please share it with people. You can sign up very easily just at industrialprogress.com, enter in your email address, and you will uh, be good to go. Also, lots of action on Facebook. So, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy is my own uh, public Facebook page. Both of those, I think, will, will provide you a lot of value and provide a good thing to share with friends. Uh, also, if you've been noticing, I have a Forbes.com uh, column, which so far, at least, I'm on a weekly schedule with. Uh, this last week, I talked about the divestment movement. The week before, I talked about the uh, Tesla and how it's a fossil fuel car or a, a coal car, a term that uh, seems to offend many Tesla owners, although it certainly shouldn't. And so, so yeah, with the newsletter, you can stay up to date with the column, or if you go to Forbes.com and search for Alex Epstein, you can, you can subscribe to the column. Anyway, hopefully those resources are enjoyable, edifying, and persuasive to friends and family. 
and make the most of them. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.